Where would you be today without prayer? Just think about that for a minute. Imagine everything else in the Christian life is exactly the same, but no prayer. The scriptures are silent on the subject, which means you've never prayed for yourself, you've never prayed for others or with others, and no one has ever prayed for you. Your childhood, prayerless. Your adolescence, prayerless. Your adulthood, prayerless. When you were having trouble as a child with school and friends and bullies and worries, no prayer. When you had big decisions to make as a young adult about your life and career and marriage, no prayer. When you got your first job and you bought your first house and had your first child, no prayer. Or that time that you had all those unexpected bills and the money was starting to run out, no prayer. Or at that appointment, when you found out from the doctor that you or one of your loved ones had a terrible disease, no prayer. Or that day tragedy struck your family and nothing was ever the same again, no prayer. Or just imagine what it would be like to do gospel ministry and missions without prayer. Or to watch a child who once professed faith in Christ, walk away from it all without prayer. Or to struggle with your own disappointments and doubts about God without prayer. Where would you be today without prayer? Would you be here? Would you still be in the faith? In James 5, 7 to 12, the Jewish Christians to whom the apostle was originally writing were encouraged to be patient in suffering. You remember, like a faithful farmer, like the persevering prophets of the Old Testament, and like Job, who waited patiently on the mercy and compassion of the Lord. Well, this morning's text, as we come to this final section of the book, James 5, 13 to 20, which is also the last passage in the book, These first century Christians were given further instruction of how to patiently persevere as followers of Christ, progressing in spiritual maturity, which you remember is the theme of this book, even while they faced many of the kind of difficulties I just mentioned, and others as well. And the Apostle James, in this final passage, he reminds them, and he reminds all beleaguered believers everywhere, that that when the pressure's on in the Christian life, when we're facing all these difficulties and decisions, like I had mentioned before, the only way to persevere is through prayer. Whatever the situation may be, as we're now going to see. First of all, in verse 13 where James tells us that we need to pray for ourselves in order to persevere, specifically when suffering. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now, as we've seen throughout the letter of James, many of these Jewish Christians he was originally writing to were suffering. They had been scattered among the nations through persecution, and they were experiencing trials of various kinds. We saw that right at the beginning of chapter 1. And it seems that some of the rich foreigners were especially exploiting them in their precarious situation, oppressing them, dragging them into courts, keeping back their wages by fraud, even condemning and murdering some for their own selfish gain. We saw that in chapter 2, but especially at the beginning of chapter 5. 
Now, there are many ways that they could respond to these troubling and trying circumstances. And the most natural would be to complain. But James tells his afflicted brothers and sisters in Christ rather to call out to the Lord for help. Let him pray, he simply states. Don't grumble to one another, but rather go to God with your concerns, with your cries. After all, this is exactly what so many of their faithful forefathers in the Old Testament had done. When King David was in great distress, we read in Psalm 18 that he called upon the Lord, crying out for help. When King Manasseh was captured by the Assyrians, we read in 2 Chronicles 33 that he entreated the Lord. When the prophet Jeremiah was literally in the depths of the pit, Lamentations 3 says he called upon the Lord. And when the prophet Jonah was in the belly of the fish, we read in Jonah 2 that he too called out to the Lord. But far more significantly, this is exactly what Jesus did. Moments before his arrest and subsequent crucifixion for the sins of the world. In Luke twenty-two forty-four, it says, in agony he prayed. Offering up supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save. Hebrews 5, 7 comments on that. Now, church, if these righteous believers prayed in their suffering, even the Son of God himself, then surely we must do the same. No matter how great or how small our suffering may be, which isn't always easy to do. It's not always easy to believe. Ten years ago, um, I was having a conversation with a young man who was a new believer. He was really excited about this new journey with Christ. And uh, after an encouraging conversation, I asked, hey, is there anything I can pray for you about? To which we responded, no, 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 no. I decided I don't want to do that sort of thing anymore. Okay, and he went on to explain. He says, you see, there's so much great suffering in this world. When I look at my small problems, how could God possibly care about that? Why would I waste God's time with my problems, with my struggles, when there's so many others suffering? So, Thanks for the offer, but no thanks. That is something I had never heard anyone ever say before. I've never heard anyone say that since, be that honest. But I have a feeling that maybe this is the reason why some don't pray. Deep down, they have a similar idea that, well, how could God possibly care about my small sufferings in the scheme of things? But James, he corrects that thinking by telling us plainly here that whatever the trouble may be, we must go to God in prayer. And just as he did earlier in chapter 1, verse 5, specifically telling us how to ask for wisdom when we need it. And he goes on to say, doing so knowing that God is not reluctant to answer. But rather, he says, he gives generously without reproach. D.L. Moody once said, some people think God does not like to be troubled with our constant coming and asking. But the real way to trouble God is not to come at all. And that's exactly what James is reminding us of here. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Then he goes on. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. You know, prayer and praise, they are always meant to go together. They are both essential to a mature and maturing Christian life. Especially when persevering through suffering as we follow Christ. Because they, 
they balance us out, focusing us on, on what we lack, but also on what we have, on what we need, but also on what we are sure to receive. So in our suffering with tears, we, we cry out, God, I need you. I cannot make it through this without you. And then at the same time, we rejoice, and God, you're faithful. And you will give me the strength I need to persevere. And I trust you will use this suffering, as we just sang in that song, to sanctify me, to actually grow me in Christ. Paul connects these things in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, where he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We need to pray for ourselves in order to persevere through suffering. But then James goes on in verse 14 to 15 to remind us that we also need the prayers of others, specifically to persevere when sick. So verse 14, he goes on. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of of the Lord. So throughout the New Testament, the local church is always led by a plurality of godly men, a group of qualified spiritual leaders called elders most often, but also sometimes called overseers or pastors as well. And they're given the, the weighty responsibility of watching over the church's spiritual welfare. We see this, for example, in Acts 20, verse 28, where the Apostle Paul tell, told the Ephesian elders, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, James writes here that one way the elders fulfill this responsibility is through prayer. And specifically, going to the sick when they are called to do so. An important qualification. Notice the responsibility is on those who are ill to initiate this time of special prayer. It's something that church members need to ask for, uh, specifically when they are too sick to go for prayer. And so, church, please do ask. Don't be shy, don't hesitate. Freely call the elders of our church who know you and love you and are called to care for you. We are ready and willing to pray for you in your sickness anytime. Well, also, as James goes on to say, anointing you with oil. Uh, this was a, a symbol of the Holy Spirit who can heal, but it also was an example of using uh, whatever medical care is available, as the Greeks suggest. The word anointing here used in its common sense rather than a ceremonial sense. And so, like the disciples who anointed the sick with oil in Mark 16.30, uh, or the Good Samaritan who bound up that beaten, beaten man's wounds and then he poured oil and wine on them in Luke 10.34. So we should use uh, medicinal methods along with prayer. Uh, both of these are gracious gifts of God. And we're reminded to use them here. And yet the emphasis is clearly on prayer. Which should cause us all to consider whether this is our priority when we are seriously ill. Of course, we, we, we call on the doctor to, to quickly come to, in order to receive medical attention. But do we also call on the elders to come as quickly as possible in order to receive the spiritual attention we need? 
You know, when we don't, we miss out on something so special, so powerful. Some of my sweetest uh, memories in ministry have been praying over the sick with other elders whose love for the flock is so evident as they pray, often with tears, imploring the Lord to help and heal this member of the congregation. It's such a beautiful time. Praying, Lord, would you help them through this and would you heal them if it is your will. Another important qualification. Notice the elders are to pray and anoint with oil in the name of the Lord, which simply means according to his will. Okay, this isn't a magic formula that we tag on to the ends of our prayers. No, in the ancient world, the the name of a person represented that person himself. And when someone did something or asked something in the name of another person, it was according to who that person was and specifically according to their authority and according to their will. And so when elders are told to pray over the sick in the name of the Lord, it means that we are to do this according to his authority and his will, which is not always to heal in this life. He certainly can heal when he chooses, and he certainly will heal everyone who's united to Christ in the end at the final resurrection, which we look forward to. But nowhere in scripture are we told that he will always heal us in this life. If that was true, none of us would ever die. And so we must ask for healing while leaving the answer to his perfect will. And this is how the Apostle John uh, encouraged the churches to pray in 1 John 5.14. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And of course, this is what Jesus meant when he taught us throughout the Gospels constantly to ask in his name. As well, this is what Jesus did, always asking, always praying, doing everything in ministry according to the will of God, his Father. He himself ultimately praying, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Which, you know, is such such a freeing way to pray, isn't it? Ultimately giving our sickness or giving anything else to God's perfect will rather than trying to bend his to our very imperfect will. After we've made our requests known to God, D.L. Moody once wrote, our language should always then be, thy will be done. He then admitted, I would a thousand times rather that God's will should be done than my own, and that he should choose for me. Again, this is what it means to pray in the name of the Lord. Or we could say, to pray by faith. What James says is the only kind of prayer that can save, as he goes on in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So when God does choose to heal his people through prayer, either with medicine or miraculously or both, it is always in response to faith trusting in almighty God and his power and his will. In fact, faith is necessary whenever we are praying. As James reminded us uh, in in chapter 1, in chapter 1 verse 5, when he said to pray for wisdom, he went on in verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. Puritan pastor Thomas Watson once put it this way, the reason so many prayers suffer shipwreck is because they are split against the rock of unbelief. But on the other hand, James tells us that the prayer of faith can be the means that God uses to save, or as the NIV says, make well the one who is sick, raising him up out of his sick bed, which is something we have seen, haven't we, within our own church before, even recently, as those who've been sick have been prayed for by the elders in faith and others in the church while also receiving medical treatment and have been healed and we rejoice in that even though we know that it's not always God's will but there's more to it than that through prayer those struggling with severe sickness have also received the strength they need to remain steadfast in the faith some even discovering that through that sickness unknown sin in their lives was exposed that needed to be confessed and forgiven. And what they found is in this sickness, there's actually been an opportunity to grow in spiritual maturity. This is actually a very common experience. God using our, our suffering and our sickness to sanctify us from our sin. That's why James goes on to write in the middle of verse 15. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Have you ever noticed how Jesus often dealt with sickness and sin in the same moment? He would often heal and forgive people in the same interaction in the Gospels. Well, as I just pointed out, that's because, amongst other things, when we are sick, it often exposes weak faith or even a lack of faith in God, which he then graciously comes along and strengthens in the midst of our suffering. Just think of the paralytic in Mark 2 who came to be healed and walk again, but then left not only carrying his mat, but being forgiven of his sins because of his faith and his interaction with Christ. Yet another reason sin and sickness are sometimes found together, as they are here, is that God at times, let me say, not always, most often not, but sometimes... It is to discipline his children who are living in sin. Through sickness, like some of the Corinthians who it says were dying because of their unrepented sin. Again, this is not always the case, not by far. Jesus made that very clear in John 9. But in some instances, it can be God's way of getting the attention of his wayward children who are living in unrepentant sin, straying from Christ, which is what James goes on to finally address in the final verses of his letter. How we need to pray for one another in order to persevere when we are straying. Verse 16, he goes on, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So with the connection between sin and sickness in mind, James now instructs his readers to confess or to admit their sins to each other so that they can then pray for one another and either be healed from their sickness or maybe also healed from their sin. 
Now, this is not exactly something that is practiced by Christians a whole lot today. But clearly, this is another piece to our perseverance and our progression in spiritual maturity. This isn't easy. It's humbling. At times, it can be embarrassing. But if we're going to overcome sin, if we're going to be helped and healed from our own sinful habits, we need one another. Galatians 6 verse 1 says, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And one of the main ways we do that, particularly when someone has humbly come and confessed their sin, confessed their struggle, is to pray for them. Particularly to have those who maybe are not facing that same struggle to pray. And that's what we see in the middle of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has power as it is working. Now, as we saw earlier in James 2.23, a righteous person is first and foremost a believer who, like Abraham, is, is counted righteous by faith in God. However, the context indicates this is specifically referring to a mature believer, a, a spiritual believer who is who's living righteously, who has a living and active faith. The scriptures tell us that the prayers of such a person are especially effective. Psalm 34, the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears toward their cry. This is something that I've experienced personally. There was a time in my life when I was a young man that I was struggling greatly with sin and rebellion, straying from the Savior. And it was the prayers of righteous friends and family who I'd confessed my sin to that ultimately turned things around for me in a powerful way. They were pursuing righteousness, not perfectly, but they were pursuing it, and God answered their prayers for a wandering teen. And this is exactly what Elijah had done, his prayers, as we go on to read, for wandering Israel. Verse 17 and 18, we read, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and earth bore its fruit. This incident is found in 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Kings sorry, 17 to 18, where we read about how wicked king Ahab and his uh, queen Jezebel had led Israel away from the Lord to worship Baal. And God disciplined the nation by holding back the rain for three and one half years until, you know this story, Elijah miraculously defeated the priests of Baal, proved who God truly was, and then prayed for rain and for the restoration of his people, sending his servant out seven times until God answered. James says he prayed fervently, which is a really interesting uh, term in the Greek. Literally, uh, he prayed in his prayers. Or he really prayed, not ceasing until God answered, restoring the straying nation and sending the rain. Church, is that how, how we pray for one another when a brother or sister in Christ are caught in sin and confesses it to us? We, like Elijah, are to pray fervently until that brother or sister finds freedom. So often someone shares a struggle, shares sin with us, and okay, I'll pray with you. And maybe we pray with them that moment or we pray with them later that day. And then we forget all about it. And then we're shocked when they're, they're still struggling in that sin weeks, months, years later, maybe even getting worse. When we are called to not give up, but to pray fervently 
even three and a half years or more until they find that freedom. Continue steadfast in prayer, Paul writes in Colossians 4.2. That's especially true here because after all, church, there's nothing more, more loving and more caring than we can do for a brother and sister in Christ who is straying from the truth than to bring them back from the brink of death. Which is how James concludes his letter. My brothers, if anyone is among you wandering from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save him from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Sin ultimately leads to death. For the unbeliever, it leads to spiritual eternal death. For the believer, it can even lead to physical death. We saw this earlier in chapter 115. But when, when a believer repents and is brought back to walking by the royal law of love, those sins are covered, forgiven, forever put out of God's sight so that he or she can start growing again in Christ. Which I hope, I hope is what we want for one another more than anything else. And that's why we must pray for one another when straying. Not not going to others to gossip about it, but going to God. Asking him fervently, please set this brother or sister free from this sin. Bring them back. So church, is that what we are doing? Do we pray fervently, faithfully, firstly for ourselves and for each other? Let's be honest, whether it's concern for a straying brother or sister in Christ or or concern for anything else that might derail our perseverance in the Christian life, we often delay going to God in prayer, don't we? In fact, sometimes, let's be honest, it's the last resort. Well, nothing else has worked. I guess I should go to God in prayer. Or sometimes maybe we don't pray at all tragically neglecting the most powerful means we have for persevering and progressing in the Christian life. Contemplating the the glories and joys of of heaven, D.L. Moody, who I quoted before, he once confessed another time, next to the wonder of seeing my Savior will be, I think, the wonder that I made so little use of the power of prayer. How true. Which is no doubt why James concludes his letter by exhorting his readers then and now who want to be mature and complete, lacking in nothing, who want to be blessed in their trials, who want to overcome temptation, who want to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, who want to be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word, who want to have a, a pure and undefiled religion, who do not want to show partiality to others, who want to have a living faith activated by good works rather than a dead faith, who want to tame their tongues, who want God's wisdom from above, who want want to be humble before God and others, who want to plan wisely according to God's will, and who want to patiently persevere why he calls us to pray, to make the most of this great power that has preserved us thus far and will enable us to persevere in faithfulness to Christ and maturity to the end which again is what this letter is all about, that we would grow in spiritual maturity filled with truth for life so that we can experience more of the life that God wants for us as his children.
And the foundation of that, the first point, must be prayer. And so let's go to him now in prayer as we thank him for that. Well, we're thankful for this series through the book of James that we've been able to conclude this morning and how it's just been so full of truth for life. Instruction about how we can grow in Christ. How we can become more faithful followers of the Lord Jesus. Mature and complete, lacking in nothing. That's your greatest desire for us. May that be our greatest desire for ourselves and for each other as well. And may we want to be so badly more like Jesus. And want to see each other so badly be more like Jesus. That we would go to you fervently in prayer. Asking you to give us the grace we need. To persevere. And always be progressing. In maturity as followers of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.